Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 74. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about multiple masculinities with Dr. Rob Stegman, who is the author of Contested Masculinities, Polysemy and Gender in First Thessalonians, published in 2020 with Lexington Books. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this episode, as we continue our conversation on cultural identity, Dr. Stegman provides a really fascinating model of somebody who is very open about his cultural situatedness, his particular context, and how that influences the way that he reads the text. And so we talk about his research on masculinity and Paul from a post-colonial perspective, from a gender-critical perspective, uh, and it's all really, really fascinating. And one of the things I just really appreciated is how not only does he do that well, but he's just very explicit about his context and about his background as he does this important work. And it really models what we're getting at in this series as a whole. Grace and Logan, what did you two make of this conversation? One of my favorite parts about this episode is the way Dr. Stegman talks about the value of post-colonial criticism when applied to Paul and also when applied to ourselves as readers. And he'll have a lot to say about that. That's really helpful. There's lots that I really enjoyed about this episode and I'm a big fan of Dr. Stegman's work. Um, I sort of came to it quite late as I was getting ready to submit my PhD and um, I think there was a lot of value for me in finding somebody else who seemed to read Paul in a similar way uh, that I did. And I think something I find really valuable about his approach is emphasising a sort of multiplicity of masculinity within the text. So he's really keen that we don't uh, sort of pin Paul into just one category but try and allow the text to speak in its complexity and embrace that as a sort of quite a rich theological category actually that that enables a lot of freedom for thinking about gender from a contemporary perspective because we don't have to try and read a static conception of gender off the text and think about that for for modern ideals of masculinity so I think that category of multiplicity is really useful and um, found it helpful hearing him unpack that in a variety of different ways. And here's our episode with Dr. Stegman. Well, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, so how about we begin by hearing a little bit about your book, Contested Masculinities. Could you tell us a little bit about what the specific thesis is that you're arguing for? Sure. So basically what I tried to do with the book uh, was to just take a look at how Paul thinks about and talks about masculinity, how he reflects on, on masculinity, in some ways also how he constructs masculinity um, my particular focus in the book is on 1 Thessalonians. So I played around with some of the metaphors that he uses in 1 Thessalonians, specifically focusing on um, his use of infant, nurse, and, and, and father, and, and kind of played around with what those terms might mean in, in terms of how we understand gender, but masculinity specifically. So the book is, is aimed at, at reflecting on masculinity, and it, it does so 
from a, a specifically South African context. So I try to also just stay true to, to where I find myself, where I'm located as, as, a, as a New Testament scholar. And um, yeah, just exploring, uh, I suppose, potential uh, expressions of masculinity that don't necessarily conform to, to what is expected, to what we might call hegemonic masculinities or toxic masculinities. Um, in some ways, trying to make a, a, a wider case or open the conversation up. Yeah, and I think, I think in some ways, my interest is, is in the hermeneutics, is how we actually approach the text in the first place um, and what those approaches ultimately mean for how we might construct gender. Yeah, thanks for that summary. And um, I mean, I've said this to you sort of privately, but one of the things that I love about your book is that you're very upfront about your sort of personal relationship with the research that you're doing and particularly things to do with your upbringing and just reflecting on your own sort of social location, how that interacts with your research, how you um, see the text. And you have this great line where you say, between the lines of this book is my story. And I wondered whether that's an approach you've always always had with your work and been sort of quite aware of um, thinking about your social location, or if this is sort of a more recent journey that you've gone on and whether you could just tell us a bit more about um, yeah, sort of how you've come to that perspective and how you came to writing the introduction of your book in the way that you did. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think the best way to explain it is, I think in large part, my experience inside the classroom has shaped my approach to, to my own um, research. And I, and I think in many ways, my students often challenged me to bring myself into the space. Um, to acknowledge what that ultimately means for for what we're doing, I think in some ways there's there's a sense of irony. I was trying to teach my students to acknowledge where they come from and what that ultimately means for their interpretations of the text. So, in many ways, um, the sort of world in front of the text was was always um, an important part of of what I was trying to you know relay to them. Uh, and I think it, it sort of struck me, um, the book is based on, on, on my PhD, and I, and I think once I'd completed the project, it, uh, it suddenly dawned on me that in many ways, the subject matter had taken hold of me in a way that I, in some ways, didn't expect. And, and it sort of reflected itself in, in, in acknowledging, yeah, I suppose in acknowledging that that there is, there is definitely my story playing out within the research. Um, and, and in some ways, even when I was writing the, the, the PhD thesis, I, I was quite deliberate in not trying to hide myself in the process. I, I think there's always this expectation um, when you're doing your thesis or your dissertation that um, you've got to remain objective and scientific about how you're approaching things. And it just didn't work for me. I, I, I think I remember very clearly, uh, I think it was in my first chapter in the actual PhD dissertation that I, I indicated in a footnote that I was going to be deliberate about speaking about myself and, and speaking in the first person and not hiding from the fact that there is, uh, there is the presence of, of, a, of a person here doing the research and engaging with the text. And that actually makes a difference to the kind of work that I, that I, that I think we ought to be doing as biblical scholars. Um, so I, I didn't want to run away from that reality. And so there, was, there were a couple of moments in, in the writing itself. And I think even when it came to producing the book, 
uh, where I was anxious and nervous about what, how they might be received by the academic community. Um, but at the same time, I, I also just thought, you know what, somebody at some point has to do this work, right? Um, and I, I think fortunately, there were also a number of scholars who, who'd, who'd influenced my thinking um, among them, you know, Davina Lopez and so on. And, and I saw them positioning themselves in their research and, and that just resonated with me. And, and so I, th I think as I reflected back on the process, it suddenly dawned on me that, sure, I think this was actually my story being told in, in maybe a, a more academic register, but um, my own upbringing, my own experiences, um, the experiences that I'd had with some of my students as well, um, as they've kind of wrestled with similar ideas and, and that shaped the project ultimately and shapes my research still to this day. Yeah, I mean, I found it really refreshing. So I certainly hope that others will be inspired by the approach that you take in your, um, well, I say your introduction, but obviously it's the whole of your book, really. Um, but that we'll start to see more of that. Um, and you've touched on this at the end, but um, I, one of the things you talk about in the intro is uh, sort of wrestling with gender stereotypes, or I suppose particularly kind of reflecting back perhaps on your childhood and then thinking about how to engage with biblical texts. Um, and obviously your monograph is about kind of one of Paul's letters in particular, and Paul is, um, you know, a contested candidate when it comes to thinking about gender in the New Testament. Um, and I'm always interested to ask other people working on Paul and gender so is there what do you find helpful in Paul for thinking through some of those challenges when it comes to gender stereotypes what might you challenge him on how has that sort of shifted as you've worked on Paul um just interested to hear your reflections on that yeah I mean as you say Paul is uh is a contested figure um and I think I was always also conscious of the fact that that anything that began to talk about gender and Paul that there was almost a default position within the academy that it was it, was, it either had to deal with how Paul deals with women um, specifically, um, or or how he how he frames the household, for example, or uh, you know I, I suppose in some ways the sort of typical tropes that one would expect within a, gen, a gender critical perspective on Paul. Um, but I think the thing that resonated with me um, again just reflecting on on the important work of someone like Davina Lopez, who, who wrestles with Paul within the context of Roman imperial ideology and specifically looking at how the empire uh, represented conquered nations as, you know, as, as feminized bodies and, and how important that was for framing Paul. And I think here the thing for me that, that really stood out was Paul as the vulnerable one, Paul as um, as decentered by the empire, but at the same time, in in what I was trying to do in 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 the monograph is is also pay attention to post colonial um, criticism and how it approaches the text and recognize that at the end of the day, there's there's definitely power differential um, playing out within the text, and Paul is is very effective in his ability to to make use of rhetorical strategies to position himself in relation to his audience, but at the same time is also a vulnerable, conquered Jew. And, and that makes for a, a, a very interesting engagement with Paul, I think. And it's sometimes, I, I think it is the case that we, 
we've painted Paul into a corner in some ways, and we've not fully appreciated the complexity of of who he was and who he represents himself to be. And I think that's also for me quite a critical factor is is trying to get a sense of how he is positioned by the empire, but how he tries to navigate that empire, sometimes successfully subverting it, but at other times actually playing into the hands of the empire and simply reinscribing some of the patterns and norms that we see there. So there's a there's a sense of ambivalence. And I think that's exactly what a post-colonial lens brings to the table is that it it says to us that even in a, a situation of colonialism or of empire, uh, we're dealing with with hybrid identities, we're dealing with complexity, we're dealing with ambiguities and ambivalence. And, and that means an, a character, even in their own representation of themselves, is neither one thing or the other entirely, that there's, there's more going on there. And I think as I, as I sort of wrestled with that dynamic and, and as I worked through Thessalonians and as I kind of reflected on the South African context as well, uh, it just occurred to me that in some ways, maybe we're missing something in the conversation around Paul um, as, as not always being your typical male um, that, that reinforces, reinscribes dominant um, understandings of masculinity, for example. And that that side of, of the equation um, probably needs a little more attention than I think it has been given up to this point. So. What, what would I say to Paul? Uh, what things would I correct or, or challenge? Or I, I don't know. I think I've come to a point where I, I appreciate what he's attempting to do insofar as I'm wrestling with how he represents what he's doing. Um, but I'm also recognizing in that, that even, even as he represents himself, he's also representing the audience to whom he's addressing himself. Um, and, and so there's there's a lot more going on. There are conversations that we're not privy to. Um, and, and and I think a large part of the work that we ought to be doing as well is is trying to imagine those conversations and 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 try and reconstruct from what we have in the text itself. Um, you know, I suppose the 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 voices that are often silenced in in a conversation like a letter, which I suppose in one way is dialogical, but we only have one side of the equation. On that point about, you know, Paul might not be typical, um, looking at a specific example in First Thessalonians, a contested one, First uh, Thessalonians 2 verse 7, and the whole issue of whether the the text reads napioi or apioi, right? Mm-hmm. Are we referring to Paul, Paul being gentle among them or infants among them? Uh, and of course, the context there being quite interesting with parental imagery uh, around it as well, as in a nursing mother in particular. Curious uh, if you could speak to that instance. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that is also the focus of, of what I, I tried to wrestle with. And I definitely sided more with the scholarship that, that went with Napioi, uh, precisely because I think it's a little more disruptive. Gentle, I think, misses the point of the text. And I understand why, why the majority scholarly position um, seeks to go for gentle, because that is the, the majority position. Um, but I think there is more in the text to, uh, let's put it this way. I, I, I think I, I have a preference for the Napioi precisely because 
it goes against the grain. And, and I think what Paul is trying to do, and I, when I say Paul, I think what's also important here is that it's Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, and they, they're a collective. And I think that's fairly critical to reading 1 Thessalonians, and they collectively present themselves with this metaphor of an infant. And what, what I think is sometimes also missed, and this is in some ways not necessarily um, the main focus of, of the book itself, but is, is how infants are gendered. Um, and, and what is the implication of the gendering of infants? Um, I know this came up in my Viva. Um, Davina Lopez was, was one of the examiners, external examiners, and, and she asked, well, she, she said, you know, one of the things that we really do need to reflect on is, is how infants are gendered themselves. And, and it plays into um, a more feminine gendering um, because children of a certain age don't are not they haven't reached the, the age of majority if that makes any sense so it's until a male child reaches a particular age and makes the transition um they're they're not seen as male yet and i think the, therein is 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 a lot to kind of play around with and and, and wrestle with in some ways it's it's the one thing i i would have liked to have developed a little bit further but um obviously uh <laughs> One makes one makes choices uh, about these things at the end of the day. So yeah, I definitely side with Napier as, as the translation uh, was as the text critical um, uh, term to to go with there against the grain. Um, yeah, I prefer the disruptiveness. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. I definitely um, think that's the better reading, and um, yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned the sort of communal dynamic because I think that often gets missed in yeah. readings of this text it's so focused on Paul and we forget that he's actually describing this kind of relationship with his co-writers um, and just dwelling with that image of the three of them sort of these collective infants these collective nurses and kind of taking that quite far and thinking about this idea of them being sort of new mothers um, kind of breastfeeding it, there's quite a lot of rich potential there that often gets glossed over and thinking about the three of them together sort of adds quite a significant dynamic to that. So um, uh, I remember sort of reading your section on that and I was like, yes, I just, I think this is a real conversation that's missing. So it was really good to see that um, in your work on that passage. So we mentioned already the combination between gender criticism and post-colonial methodology. Um, how is the combination of those two impacting your reading of Paul's texts? And what do each of those add to the other? Um, I'm keen to hear about the dimensions of this, especially from a South African perspective, particularly. Um, and are there ways that we are maybe too reliant on work coming out of the States for these kinds of critical methodologies? Yeah, so I, 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 think, um, I think for me, the, the, the two foci that I, I try to bring to my reading of Paul and of 1 Thessalonians, in particular, gender criticism and post-colonial criticism, um, try to do two things. First, with gender criticism, obviously, by applying a gender critical approach to 1 Thessalonians, I'm immediately wanting to foreground um, aspects of gender. And I think that's quite important. There's a fair amount of work that's been done on 1 Thessalonians in terms of feminist perspectives um, on, on 1, Thessalonian, 1 Thessalonians. But I think what was missing was a specifically masculine perspective um, and so employing 
um, gender critical and specifically men's studies or masculinity studies, I think highlights things in the text that often go unnoticed. And, and again, whatever approach one chooses to the text, uh, that's what's going to emerge in our reading of the text. And I think that's a fairly important part of, of what I was trying to do is say, let's, let's be specific and deliberate about gender criticism as an approach to the text, focusing on masculinity specifically, but obviously also recognizing wider application. And then in terms of post-colonial criticism, there I wanted to play with how post-colonial criticism gives us the language to understand um, the dynamics of relationships between colonizer and colonized and the, the differential in power that exists there. And I think quite importantly, the complexity of the relationships that exist in a colonial context. And I think within the South African context, I'm not sure how many would, would have a full understanding or appreciation for South Africa's context or history, but I had to recognize as a, as a white male living in South Africa with our long history of uh, colonialism and apartheid that, that these things had, had created a foundational story for who we are as South Africans. And, and the tools of, of gender criticism, the tools of post-colonial biblical criticism specifically enable, enabled me to, to wrestle with aspects of the text that I think have application for the South African situation. And I think also just an appreciation for, for our own complex situation. So again, I was quite deliberate about foregrounding some of the South African realities um, as a way into Paul and and a lot of the a lot of my work with my students um, has focused on contextual Bible study as a methodology and and the point of contextual Bible study is to acknowledge the social location of the reader and to bring that into the text and to wrestle with the implication of that social um, uh, position for how we how we make meaning from the text itself and and by employing a gender critical and a post-colonial biblical frame um again just highlighting aspects of the text that that again we can we can often miss precisely because we're either only reading in a very narrow um i suppose in some ways a very narrow devotional way uh, i think this is generally true in in terms of the audience in the, in the church context um, and and what I've found is that where we're able to bring um, a lens to the text in that context, that it's unlocking things for the audience, um, and it's it's the kind of stuff that I think that needs to be unlocked. I think especially for South Africa, as we continue to wrestle with with what it means to be human and and and, and wrestle with the aftermath of of colonial history and apartheid history. Um, and it's, it's still everywhere of, um, visible in our context. So uh, a really helpful category that uh, I was taught by um, a lecturer in French at Queen Mary University of London. Her name is Dr. Rebecca Vince. She talks about, or she's taught me about this concept of um, implicated subjects. Yeah. In, in a colonial relationship, there isn't this very clear relationship between colonizer and colonized to yeah. use Memi's language um, that the colonized can become a part of this 
colonizing system. And Franz Fanon talks about that as well, about kind of like accepting the terms uh, of colonialism, even in trying to press back on it. And um, this relationship, uh, you know, the relationship between colonizer and colonizers is is massively complex. And post-colonial criticism has helped us you know, analyze the, the complexity and dynamics of that relationship. Uh, yeah. I wonder how that might speak to, at least uh, maybe Grace can say more about this as well, but the, the kind of binary that we see in Pauline studies between like Paul as this positive figure who's like super helpful and like subverts the patriarchy and yeah, as like a proto-feminist or like Paul the meanie who's like just always manipulating the hell out of people. Um, I wonder if what you've mentioned about, you know, like empire, sometimes Paul subverting the empire, sometimes yeah. Paul siding with the empire, you know, how might, you know, does, does post-colonial criticism or, or at least what you've done methodologically kind of help get us beyond some of these binaries? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it does. I think what it does uh, uh, alert us to is just the complexity of what we're actually dealing with. And I think to to paint Paul either as has only ever been a subverter of the empire is to miss his his implicatedness as you kind of to to keep using the language he is in the system he is a part of the system and he is also a product of it in in the same way that any of us are the product of the systems that we're operating in we're a product of the academy we're a product of the geographical location that we find ourselves in i, I am a product of being a white south african um, who who grew up in a privileged situation because of uh, systemic racism, right? So if I can't, uh, if I can't acknowledge that and and accept that as a part of of what I continue to bring to the text and what I continue to bring to my scholarship, then then we have a major problem. Um, so what I think is important with Paul is that he is in situ. He has his own location, uh, and yes the gospel pushes and drives him to challenge that system, to recognize where that system um, is hugely problematic, works against human flourishing, um, whatever language we use there. And and I think as a consequence, he he also seeks to subvert it. But I think he is also um, working with people. Um, So when we think of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, engaging with the Thessalonian community, they are trying to do something with that community. And and I think paying attention to the rhetorical strategy within the context of an imperial situation, acknowledging the complexity of what that actually means for them as as conquered, um, and yet at the same time, also somehow recognizing that they reposition Jesus and God as 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 a new counterpolis um, meant to challenge that system. I think part of part of what emerges from that situation is is is, is slight shifts towards a more. I mean, I suppose in some ways towards a more redeemed understanding of how the community could could can exist in and of itself. But I think there's also. I think this is part of the the struggle is when we're when we're looking at what we might call a redemptive trajectory within the text, a kind of subverting of the empire. Uh, i I think we assume that it reaches its its conclusion in that particular moment. And I think that's problematic because 
Paul makes subtle shifts sometimes. Sometimes they're dramatic, but other than the dramatic ones, I think there's, there's this little shifting, 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 and it's that um, that movement that I think is important and, and paying attention to the fact that this is an ongoing story. Um, it hasn't reached its conclusion. Um, so I think in, in terms of, of really being sensitive to where Paul is placed within the context of an imperial situation, is, it's just a critical part of, of, of the situation. And I think in, in the South African context, it's, it's, in, it's proven itself in my, in my own engagements with others to be immeasurably helpful because I think what it also does is it acknowledges the reality of our history. Um, and and it, it means that the biblical text itself maybe comes home a little bit more than it otherwise would. Yeah, thank you for that nuance. I think we can be a bit liable to sort of wanting to put Paul in a particular category. And I think it's really useful to try and resist that and appreciate the complexity of him as a character of, of his text. Um, and uh, correct me if I'm misremembering the language, I'm scanning my brain now, but I think you talk about sort of multiplicity of masculinities mm. within um, 1 Thessalonians, obviously it's the focus of your book. Um, and part of the reflection you have on that is is thinking about you know what does it mean as a modern reader particularly someone who's kind of within the church and the academy uh to sort of find multiplicity of masculinity and not just kind of one static model uh what does that mean for us sort of reading the the text in a in a modern context um and i wonder if that's just something you could talk about a bit so how i i guess finding that it's not a, a static picture uh yeah. how is that useful for us reading from a modern perspective and thinking about issues of gender in 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 our time yeah i, I think there's a pastoral note um that that's also probably been a driver in in the work itself um and and that's that's kind of reflected itself or played out in in the context of my engagement with students specifically male students who, who wrestled with what was being portrayed for them in the church context as, as the biblical version of masculinity. Um, and, and, and of course, it's this notion of biblical manhood, biblical womanhood that is hugely problematic because it ignores the fact that the text itself is not unified, um, doesn't present a monolithic depiction of either manhood or, or womanhood. And, and, and so I think when, when trying to elevate multiplicity of, of masculine possibilities, it demonstrates to those who don't measure up. And I think that really is the right language to use. I think there's a sense in which there's an expectation that um, that monolithic understanding of what it means to be male is something that we have to measure up to as men. Um, and, and I think there's, there's an ideal version of, of women as well, and, and women have to live up to that in order for them to be considered good Christians. And, and that's a problem because the text, as I said, itself is not um, sort of one-dimensional. It represents or presents for us multiplicity of examples and and in any case why would any of those examples need to be 
pushed to the front as the example. I don't think that the biblical text works that way. I don't think that uh, when it comes to the construction of gender, that the text is meant to be used to present or, or to push to the front one way of understanding what it means to be male or female. Um, and and I, I think the, the, what I try to do with wrestling with the, particularly the, the feminine metaphors that Paul and his co-authors use in the text is to say, if, if these guys are comfortable with, in some ways, crossing gender boundaries, um, is it opening up the potential for understanding a multiplicity that, that it's not nearly as fixed as we want it to be? Um, I recognize that in many ways, any attempt to have a fixed and stable understanding of what it means to be male or female um, is, is something that we want because it's something against which we can measure. Um, and yet, I think the text is actually inviting us to a freedom there. Yeah, so I, 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 I can't get away from the fact that, that it, the text just gives us multiplicity um, the, and the meaning of the text itself is multiple. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's where it, I, I think I describe it along the lines of, of just recognizing that the text is porous um, and it, it's inviting us to imagine possibilities. Um, and that, that I think can be, um, I suppose, yeah, it's, it's certainly been in my experience, something that is, that is, uh, that comes across as threatening. Um, but I think I've also experienced it as something that can be quite liberating. Um, and it's trying to navigate that, which I think is massively complicated. I feel like there's lots of points in your work where you, there's a sort of ethical concern in different directions. So the, the kind of category of multiplicity is one of them in terms of thinking about um, what does that offer modern readers thinking about gender. Uh, but you're also quite keen to get the academy and the church sort of talking to one another and not having those as two separate camps either. Um, could you say a bit more about that? and? Um, um, use the metaphor of open table fellowship and um, it'd be really great to hear you unpack that and how you think that might work in practice getting those two uh, conversation partners who don't always want to talk to each other but perhaps what they can offer each other and what the fruit of that might be yeah I mean I, I definitely think that between the academy and the church there's there's a there's a massive gap of suspicion um, and and it's unfortunate because you know if I think of theological education in general I, I definitely would push the idea that that it belongs within the context of the church that it is there to serve the church um, at the same time i think the church has been so resistant to anything that is academic um, because it is it is often positioned as a threat uh, you know it's going to change how we see things how we view things it's going to change doctrine and so on and so forth i think in many ways it's 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 an ignorance of of what it is that that we're meant to be doing um, in the sense that the work is always ongoing. Um, our engagement with the text is never complete and it's, it's always in process. And, and that is a little unnerving. I, I, I get that, especially in a context where we're wanting something that's more settled and we're wanting something that's stable and predictable and, and so on. Um, and, and yet the world really is 
in in a mess in this in and it it's it is messy in and of itself. But the biblical text is also messy. Um, that that's a that's an encouraging thing for me. But in terms of in terms of trying to get these two parties to come together, um, it to me it's it's critically important. But it requires it requires a new space, a, a space in which um, both are able to be recognized for what they are. Um, and, and I think I, I play around with the idea of, of recognition and misrecognition. Um, and I think it's a helpful way of framing things because in many ways, the academy has misrecognized the church in the sense that it hasn't, it hasn't valued the church or in many ways, even more negatively, it's devalued the church. Um, which is also to say that it it is it doesn't have the kind of valorization that it should have, but I think the similar thing has happened in the context of the church in relation to the academy, um, and that misrecognition, which as I said stems from from a deep suspicion of each other, is the thing that's preventing us from seeing one another, um, and seat, sitting at the same table and engaging. And, and recognizing that what the church brings to the conversation, what the academy brings to the conversation are, are different things. They serve different purposes, but they're, they're so absolutely necessary. We need the church and we need the academy. We need somehow to find ways of bringing them together. And, and it's a very difficult space to be in. Um, I, I think in many ways, I often feel at odds with both. <laughs> in the sense that I don't know that I fit the academy because I, 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 I honestly don't want to uh, let go of the importance of the church. At the same time, I want to locate myself more firmly within the context of the church, but I, I'm, I find that, that I'm being misrecognized and, and alienated in that space because the minute it becomes, uh, the minute the congregation becomes aware of the fact that here I am, I have a PhD in New Testament uh, and so on. It shuts conversations down. It, it closes up possibilities. Um, and, and I think that's, again, it's maybe another example of, of just how personal the story is. That the, between the lines, it is also this wrestling, this, this deep tension within myself of, of somehow not being able to exercise uh, a gifting within the context of the church because it is is seen as as a threat at the same time um, recognizing that in a lot of academic spaces anything that comes at at the biblical text that that acknowledges the importance of a faith perspective is also somehow problematic because it's not scientific enough or um, you know it just doesn't fit the mold and, and obviously there are plenty of examples uh, you know in both camps where the there are spaces that are being created. So I think the thing that I, I also had to be quite careful of, um, I, I, I recognize that I used, I generalized about the church and I generalized about the academy. Um, but I think in many ways, there's a resonance in, in, in how I portrayed the problem um, between those two. And, and, and in my mind, the point of table fellowship is, that at some point somebody has to make the first move, right? Somebody has to make the invitation. And yes, we need to talk about the complexities around who gets to invite. 
whose table do we get to sit at and 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 what the power uh, asymmetries are in that context but the idea of table fellowship as as a as an open space as as an invitation to see the other um yeah as i said some someone's got to start yeah, at some point somebody's going to make the first move um and it's going to be a bit messy to start out with but yeah, and maybe it maybe it's a little too idealistic to expect, but it's it's the hope. <laughs> it's definitely the hope. Yeah, these things are generalizations, of course, but I think that would ring true for a lot of people. Those mm. kind of dual pictures of like the academy is is very suspicious of people who care anything about the contemporary relevance of these texts. Yeah. Um, and I literally, I read the other day in, uh, in an article, it was like, I mean, and I'm not even, I don't even feel like I'm even exaggerating in saying this, but, uh, the way in, in the tone in which it said, but it was like, I don't even understand why questions about contemporary theology are relevant at all, um, for exploring the text. Uh, and I think what's really being said is like, this person was arguing against people who would implicitly say, oh, this is not an interpretative option because that would kind of ruin my theology. Um, but of course, that's a total like straw man. You know, like yeah. people who ask contemporary questions aren't just saying, you know, they're not just running around trying to, you know, confirm their own theology all the time. Yeah. Um, but that's the kind, I mean, that's like, um, somebody told me once, uh, I don't think that you can do real biblical studies as a Christian because you presuppose that the Bible's going to be right. <laughs> um, and so uh, that means that you, um, you can't really be objective. Yeah. Uh, which is, of course, silly. But at the same time, I think you're, I mean, I just want to confirm that I think you're totally right that, I mean, I've experienced a lot of suspicion as a scholar. And I remember um, I attended a church that, uh, John, you were there for this, actually. I think you told me about this, actually. I attended a church where uh, when I started um, when I started my uh, master's and right after the pastor of this church met me, he immediately asked John, hey, like, you know, this Logan guy, like, is he like chill? Like with the kind of implication, like, is he like a wolf in sheep's clothing academic? <laughs> Um, I, that's the kind of vibe I got. I mean, but I, I do get that a lot. And I, but I find it ironic that the people who are always talking about, like, like we always need to be reforming or the people who are like most resistant to <laughs> any, any possibility of the academia, re, academia reforming our perception of these things. Um, so I think you're right. I think, I think it's, uh, it's difficult to exist as a, as a scholar who wants to really allow yourself to be challenged by these texts and to challenge them as well. And yet also take seriously the fact that these texts mean something to people uh, and that you're writing in part for these communities because they're the people who are interested in these texts. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think that's more of an ideal method than like running around acting like we're like, you know, objective observers of, you know, we have some God's eye perspective on things, but I digress yeah. from that very long winded digression i mean i appreciate it because i i, I think it, the, the more we begin to talk about um these experiences 
I think that's part of what needs to happen, right? Um, yeah, I recounted in the book as well, just my first my first academic conference that I attended, I presented a paper on, on behalf of myself and a colleague, and it, we, we, we definitely approached our, our study of the text from a faith perspective, but we, we, we did our work. We, we did the scholarship. We, you know, I don't think there was anything problematic in terms of the, the scholarliness of what we produced, but the, the, the fact that we had approached it from a faith perspective immediately set this audience alight and not in a good way. It, it became, you know, it, after I'd finished the presentation, there was an opportunity for Q&A. Um, and it, it literally felt like the Inquisition. Um, in fact, I had somebody come up to me after um, the session uh, and said, you must be Christian, right? In, in a way that suggested that that's where the problem is. That's why you got the feedback that you did. That's why you were pretty much then basted, you know, and, and, and torn to shreds. Um, and that's, that's a problem. You know, that is like, I, I get where, where those who are approaching the text from a more scientific perspective are coming from, but in our context, as I think in many contexts, the Bible is still used as a text. And if we can't engage with it in a serious manner, while still acknowledging that it's going to play a faith formational role, um, that's that's where I think is 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 just the biggest issue. Um, so my my role as an interpreter of the text, as someone who brings an educated perspective on the text, is to help congregations to understand that that perspective is important, because the ignorance of that perspective often leads us to to bigoted positions and and understandings of gender that are problematic. That push people into um, very flat understandings of what it means to be male or female. But how do you challenge that without bringing to bear the scholarly opinion? And, and that's why I appreciate contextual Bible study, because it doesn't negate the importance of scholarly work. It says trained readers need to work with untrained readers in a, in a conversational space that recognizes we're each bringing something to the text and our engagement with the text must pay attention to, to historical situations of the text and the background and, and how, we, how we grapple with the meaning of the text, but also acknowledge the, the social location of the reader and bringing those two things constantly in conversation with each other. And I think that's, that's part of what Table Fellowship looks like. It's, it's the, the academy and the church coming together around the table with the text being in some ways playing a, a, mediate, a mediating kind of role. Um, I don't know, I, I get disillusioned about the fact that this is such a difficult thing, difficult space to sometimes be in. Given how you were talking about, you know, coming from a faith perspective, one of the recurring questions in your book is, what does it mean to be a man? How would you want to go about answering a question like that? I think to answer that question, I would want to explore, I would want to continue the exploration of the biblical text as opening up possibilities rather than closing possibilities. Um, it's, as, as I said, it's not possible to approach the text and ignore the multiplicity that's present. And at the same time, 
to acknowledge the fact that the text isn't necessarily pointing us into or pointing us to an imitation of what's there. Yeah, I think in some contexts, it's, it's maybe a little bit more accessible to think in terms of N.T. Wright's um, improvisation. Uh, you know, it's kind of recognizing that the text gives us more than uh, enough to work with. And from, from that point to improvise. Um, I think there's a, a lack of imagination within the context of the church. Um, because I think we've, we've pretty much just bought into the idea of mimicking what we encounter within the text. And somehow we see that as, as ideal. And, and I think that's also part of the, the, the work that the scholarly community needs to figure out how to bring to the church. And I think there's, there's another conversation there, but the, the inaccessibility of academic work means that for the most part, our work is, is a waste because if it can't be translated, um, it's not going to make a difference uh, in, in, in spaces where I think many academics would say need to be changed. So the church is one of those spaces, but if you can't make your scholarship accessible to that space, um, then and that's you know, it's something that we also need to just deal with and, and figure out ways of making our scholarship accessible. But I think, yeah, I, I think pointing towards the possibilities rather than foreclosing on possibilities is, is the work. I, and, and that could take on very many different forms and, um, you know, see where it goes, see where the text takes um, the community and, and recognize that at, at the same time, Sometimes you don't need to do what the text did. It won't surprise you to hear that there's lots in that that I sort of really resonate with in terms of where I've got to with my own work as well. Um, I think that's so helpful. And I think also thank you to you for taking the time to translate some of your work into this particular context. And I hope that our listeners will find that to be valuable for their own reflections. Um, can you tell us about what you're working on at the moment, uh, where this work on multiplicity might take you next, whether that's um, academic, church, personal otherwise however you want to answer that question yeah it's it's a good question to ask it's a bit uncomfortable to answer in some ways um i i, I kind of describe myself nowadays as as a freelance new testament scholar because my my day job um has me working as an ac academic administrator um and and that's an important work to do but uh it means that i'm a little bit betwixt and between in, in some ways, but I, I think in, in terms of the ongoing work that, that interests me as a New Testament scholar, it, there's, there's, there's maybe another book in me. Um, one of the things I, I sort of play around with in, in the book is, uh, is the idea of a kenotic masculinity, um, but I, I never really develop it very much in the book itself. Um, but that's sort of something that I've been playing around with a little bit. I've, I think in some ways I've got a very basic outline for a book, but I also wanted to be more of a, a layperson um, sort of audience in mind um, rather than another scholarly work that is only going to be bought by five people and 
you know, maybe stored in some <laughs> university library. Um, I'll buy it. <laughs> I'll buy one copy. <laughs> <Yeah>. There we go. <laughs> Sold. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's, that's something that's also um, sitting, percolating at the moment. Um, I've just completed a chapter for an edited book and I, I speak. I suppose in some ways quite vulnerably about what it means to be a white male biblical scholar um, and what the implication of that is for for the work that I used to do in the classroom space. I suppose in some ways confessing to to how how I was framed by the story of the academy um, and and. I was socialized in that space and, and simply perpetuated that system. And so there's a kind of recognition that, that, that I think we, we maybe need to foreground our pedagogies a little bit more explicitly, acknowledge that we actually bring something into the space already, um, and that we have a pedagogy that informs even what we teach and how we teach it and why we teach the way that we do. And, and that's actually shaping possibilities and and also therefore um foreclosing on possibilities as well and i think that's that's messy work um it's vulnerable work but i think it's critically important um yeah i i don't know i i think that's i'd love to be doing more um new testament scholarship but uh that that's kind of my life situation at the moment Unfortunately, but also fortunately, I think it's it's also opened up a space for for thinking about higher education, um, and kind of thinking about what human flourishing looks like in higher education. I think both those projects sound fascinating, and um, you very kindly sent me a, a sort of advanced copy of that chapter, and I I'm looking forward to drawing on it in some of my work later this year. So um, yeah, grateful for you sharing that with me. Thanks, thanks, Grace. Yeah, and, and thank you so much for for joining us, Rob. This has been a wonderful conversation. Just really appreciate your your vulnerability and, and your insights and all the kind of intersectionality of thinking about cultural identity as we're doing in this series uh, from post-colonial perspective and gender critical perspective. And just really appreciate all of your insights today. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. It's been good fun.